Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached Word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. Grab your journal if you have it. Open up to Romans chapter 1. If you don't, you can grab a Bible and open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to complete Romans chapter 1 today, starting at verse 24 and reading through verse 32. And just before we begin, from last week, what Paul's doing is he's kind of describing this kind of downward spiral that's taken place when humanity falls into sin. Um, And really, he's kind of showing that the nations of the world, the Greeks and the Romans, have lived outside of God's law. Next week, we'll see that uh, Paul in chapter 2 will show that the Jews who have the law have not kept it as well. So, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word for us today. In his book, Is God Anti-Gay?, The author Sam Elberry tells the story of coming to know Jesus Christ during his high school years. He tells the joy of knowing that his sins were forgiven and the excitement that he had to grow in his faith and share his faith with others. But he also recounts how he struggled with what to do about his attraction to other men. Despite his prayers, despite his best efforts, these feelings of attraction did not go away. And so Sam was faced with a problem. How would he live as a faithful Christian in light of what God says about sexuality, especially in light of what Paul says in Romans 1, 26 to 27? As I read those two verses just a moment ago, I'm sure that it caught your attention. And I'm sure that some of you are asking yourselves, okay, is the pastor going to preach on those verses? Well, yes, I am, 
I'm going to preach on those two verses today, but not because Paul is describing a sin that is worse than any of the others listed in verses 29 through 31, things like envy or murder or strife, gossip, etc. Instead, I'm choosing to spend my sermon on these verses for a few very important reasons. For one, this topic is often contested in our culture and misunderstood in the church. So it's important that I preach today on the most contested, least understood part of the text. It's always, I've tried to keep that commitment to you that if there's something that you might struggle with in the text, I'll preach on it. I don't want to waste your time when you come to church. We want to talk about things that matter, right? Second, churches often completely avoid this topic or they address it in cliche or passive-aggressive ways or they speak in such a way that people who are really struggling don't have any space to wrestle with their questions or hear God's grace spoken into their struggle. Third, This is a very personal issue for many of us, myself included, because it involves family members and friends that we love deeply, and it may even be our own struggle. Finally, fourth, I'm preaching on this topic today because I respect you as brothers and sisters in Christ, and I believe that you're mature enough to wrestle with God's Word on this issue or any other hard topic. By the way, Pastor Tim and I have done a few podcasts on this topic. That's episodes 57, 58, 59, if you'd like to check them out on the podcast. And we encourage you to listen to these. And if you struggle with this sermon today, please know that you're welcome to talk to us. In fact, we'd ask that of you because that's the way we grow. You're not the first. You won't be the last. And we welcome that opportunity. Now, before we take a look at verses 26 and 27, I think it's important that we see how these verses fit into uh, the wider context of Paul's argument in chapters 1 through 3, and then also how these verses fit into everything else Paul is saying in Romans, because sometimes these issues of these verses have become so controversial that we think that Romans is about what it's not about. Romans is about God's salvation to us in Christ, and we need to see that. These two verses are part of a case that Paul is making against the Gentiles or the non-Jewish nations. Specifically, he's thinking of Greek culture. He's showing that disordered worship leads to disorder in every area of our lives, including the use of our bodies. And so his aim in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, our reading from last week and our reading today, is he's aiming to show that the Gentiles are guilty before God, the fair and just judge, because they've lived outside of God's law. But I want you to notice in chapter 2, our text for next week, that Paul's going to make a case against the Jews who had the law. Maybe even those who, hearing our reading today, would have pointed the finger and agreed with Paul and felt self-righteous. Well, next week, Paul's going to say, oh, no, you have the law and you don't keep it. That's important to hear because sometimes churches speaking on this issue will feel self-righteous. Nobody gets to be righteous in Romans except on account of Jesus Christ. Let's be clear on that. 
So Paul's going to point the finger at the, the Jewish people next week, showing that they have the law, but that they don't keep it. And near the end of chapter 3 in verse 20, where this section concludes, Paul has put the whole world, Jew and Gentile, on trial, and he's found that all people are under the power of sin and in need of mercy desperately. Now, Paul puts humanity on trial, and he declares all people guilty, himself included, so he can point to the surprisingly generous thing that God has done through Christ to declare us not guilty. And that's really what the rest of Romans is all about. Romans is about how God declares real sinners like you and me to be righteous, to be not guilty, not by our works, but on account of Christ. And, and really, Paul's talking in the rest of the letter about the impact this declaration makes on our lives and everything else. Now, as we continue with verses 26 and 27, I think it's worth mentioning what's at stake with this issue. This issue is not peripheral. This issue is not secondary. Because for the church to say that something is wrong when it's actually okay is incredibly cruel. Jesus himself criticized the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for making man-made rules and placing heavy burdens on people's backs. But on the other hand, it would be incredibly cruel for the church to say that something is okay when in fact it's not. That would be spiritual malpractice, right? That would be like somebody going to the hospital in need of treatment for cancer, being told, you're fine, take a couple of Tylenol, go home and rest. You're going to be all right. You see, the truth is that if I tell you lies or just what you want to hear on this topic or any other hard topic, then I should have my license to practice theology revoked. And that's why I've spent so many hours and years reading and thinking carefully on this topic. Now, with that said, the truth is that many churches get this issue wrong in one of three ways. Number one, some churches just punt on the issue. They never speak about it because they don't want to make anybody uncomfortable and they don't want to lose members. But that's cowardly, for one. And it also creates a false sense of unity in the body of Christ. It's sort of like families that get along at the surface level, but there's no depth to their relationship because they never talk through deep, hard things. You see, difficult topics that we talk through as the body of Christ are an opportunity for closeness and intimacy in the body of Christ, not a surface-level unity. Other churches are very clear about God's no on this issue, but in such a way that no is the only thing they say. These churches may also thunder from the pulpit in passive-aggressive ways, creating an environment in which people are not welcome to express their doubts, their struggles, or their failures. In fact, those who experience same-sex attractions may not feel welcome to express what they're going through, and so they miss the opportunity to hear the gospel. That's spiritual malpractice. 
And still other churches recently have departed from the Scriptures and 2,000 years of church consensus, church teaching on this issue by saying it's not an issue or even saying yes where God has clearly said no. So, for example, denominations like the ELCA have taken this approach. But once again, this is spiritual malpractice. What God has called His church to do is to speak the truth in love, whether that be the loving truth of God's law or the loving truth of God's gospel. So what exactly is Paul saying in verses 26 and 27? Simply put, Paul is echoing what we read elsewhere in Scripture, that sexuality is a good gift from God. That's the first thing we have to say. But like all good gifts, God has put boundaries around this good gift. You see that the, the higher and more valuable the gift, the more boundaries are put around it to protect it. One of the many symptoms of our misdirected worship is that we transgress the boundaries God has put in place for sexuality and the use of our bodies. Now, I'm sure that all of us here would agree that there should be some boundaries on sexual expression, right? We would agree to that. There should be some boundaries. So we would all agree to boundaries like adult, consensual, and outside of the family. So not underage, not forced, and not incestual. These are kind of like basic secular boundaries, meaning that even those who don't accept God still likely agree to these boundaries, at least in theory. But are these the only boundaries? Or should there be more? If God, our Creator, were to give us boundaries for this good gift and for the use of our bodies, what would these boundaries be? And how would we know what these boundaries are? I want you to think about that for a moment. Because in our culture, we typically don't arrive at our sexual ethics through thinking, we arrive at it through feeling. And so think about that for a minute. If God were to give us boundaries, what would those boundaries be? And how would we know those boundaries? Would those boundaries in any way be clear to us? Now, the argument that Paul is making is that one of the most basic boundaries that God has given for our sexuality is obvious because it's rooted in our creation as male and female. You see, there's a connection uh, with last week's reading. Just as God has made His existence obvious through what is created, He has also made the boundaries for our sexuality obvious through what is created. Our bodies as male and female, and the way our bodies are able to coordinate to create new life. And just as we suppress the truth to deny God's existence and claim on our lives, we also must suppress the truth of creation to embrace a sexuality that's not male and female. So basically what Paul is saying is that the boundary is obvious because the boundary is in our createdness as male and female. And when we deny this boundary, we end up dishonoring the bodies God has created for His glory and dishonoring their purposes. And we end up denying reality. But it's at this point that many people would say that the Christian teaching on this issue is itself a denial of reality. They say something that you may be thinking. They might say, okay, 
But what about people who feel an intense attraction to the same gender, an attraction they did not choose and may not even want? What about that? Let's wrestle with that for a moment. A couple of questions to think through. Could it be that we might experience a persistent desire for something that's not good for us? Would you agree with that? That part of our human experience is that we may experience a persistent desire for something that we know is not good for us. And could it be that that desire actually doesn't go away our entire lives as much as we want it to? Could it be that something wrong might actually feel natural to us? And furthermore, what should we do about a continual desire for a substance or a behavior that we know will harm ourselves or others? Does the fact that the desire is intense and doesn't go away make it okay? I don't think we'd say yes to that because that would justify anything. And what if we were born with a predisposition to this desire? Or what if we experience something growing up that makes us more likely to have this desire? Does something in our genes or in our environment make a desire okay to fulfill? Once again, I don't think we'd say yes to that question. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Really, we, we could look at this whole chapter because this whole chapter is Paul, it's kind of Paul getting real about the continued struggle that every believer has with sin. But we'll take a look at verse 21, Romans seven twenty-one. Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever felt what Paul's feeling? I don't see how you can be a Christian and not have felt what Paul's feeling, right? Like all of us, Paul experienced the continual presence of desires that were outside of God's boundaries. He even says that such desires wage war against him, and the battle is so intense at times that Paul cries out, Help! Who's going to rescue me? He feels trapped. The truth is that every Christian experiences desires for things that are not good for them. The truth is that all of us are broken in our sexuality in one way or another. The truth is that because of sin, we were all born this way. And yet, Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of the battle because Christ Jesus is on his side to both forgive and to give strength for the fight. But since Christ is risen from the dead, the resurrection of Christ changes what's actually possible for us in terms of our decisions and actions. So let's say that you only had a single dollar bill 
to your name. That's all that you had. You only had one dollar bill. And let's say that I came up to you and I asked you, can you give me that dollar bill? How would you react to that request? You crumple it up in your hands, stuff it in your pocket, and maybe run away, right? You would avoid giving it up. But what if I wanted you to hand over that dollar bill because I wanted to give you in exchange for it an envelope of crisp $100 bills? See, if you knew that, if you were aware of that, it'd be a whole different story. You would let go of something small to receive something greater. You see, when God says no to something, He doesn't say no because He's cruel. He says no because He desires our highest good, and He says no so He can give us something better. And that something better actually is His best, Christ. And that's really what Romans is all about. Paul's letter to the Romans is like an envelope full of crisp $100 bills. It's full of everything that Jesus Christ has won for you through his life, his death, his resurrection, things like forgiveness and justification and freedom and adoption and no condemnation and life eternal and and God's presence in the midst of struggle and the redemption and the healing of our bodies and our minds and even all of creation. And it's these gifts that God freely gives to us in Christ that gives us the ability, the leverage to say no to what the world says we should say yes to. Turn with me now to chapter 8. I can't wait till we get to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is good. It's all good, but chapter 7 is about the struggle, the reality right now, the struggle that we have between the old and new, between... Uh, sin and God's righteousness. And yet in chapter 8, we get some hope. Chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, and I think reflecting on his own sufferings, right, we need to remember that Paul had some skin in this game, like Paul had lost everything for Christ and eventually lost his life. And in the midst of that suffering, internally and externally, this is what he says. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, you know, God does say no at times, but, and when God says no, that no can cause suffering in our lives because we end up having to say no to what God said no to. But when God says no, it's because He's given us an even more glorious yes that's even greater than what we can ever imagine that He's stored up for us in Christ. Now, at this point, some of you might respond, okay, Pastor John, I get the logic here. I can't deny what Paul says, what God's Word says. But that's kind of easy for you to say because you're married. What about those who can't be? Isn't it unfair for those who are same-sex attracted to be denied the intimacy that comes from marriage? That's a valid question. For one, I think it's important that we listen carefully to the stories of same-sex attracted Christians who have found intimacy and friendship within the body of Christ and who do not regret their faithfulness to God's Word. 
I think that these are some of the greatest saints in the church, and I have the highest respect for them, and we should too. We should honor them by listening to their struggle, yes, but also listening to their joy. Second, I think that their witness is a challenge to us who are married to not idolize sex and marriage. We who are married can easily end up worshiping the created rather than the creator and so be guilty of the same idolatry that Paul condemned earlier in chapter 1. There's a reason why so many in the history of the church have chosen the single celibate life. They really believed what all of us should believe, whether we're married or not, that Jesus Christ really is enough. In fact, He's more than enough. Jesus Christ is not a plastic trophy awarded to those who are single. No. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and His love makes all intimacy and pleasure look like nothing in comparison. Jackie Hill Perry, who to some degree has the same experience as Sam Albury, says this in her book, Gay Girl, Good God. He says, our sexuality is not our soul. Marriage is not heaven, and singleness is not hell. The truth is this. When it comes to following Jesus Christ, all of us lose something. If you haven't lost something, you probably have the wrong Jesus. Jesus Himself says clearly in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now what we lose doesn't always look the same. Some people actually lose their lives, the martyrs. Some people lose their friends. Some people lose family and others lose riches. Some lose habits and addictions. We all lose control over our lives. We all lose our pride and our self-sufficiency. But in our loss, we all freely gain Christ all because He laid down His life for us, and the truth is that He really is worth it. Amen.